Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in French Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Roxanne Penchassi. My guest in this episode is Julie Kleinman, the author of Adventure Capital, Migration and the Making of an African Hub in Paris. And the book was published by the University of California Press in 2019. Hi there, Julie. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to it. Julie, I've been asking everybody I speak with during this ongoing period of global pandemic, you know, where they are and how they've been doing. So anything you want to tell us about that, just sort of checking in. Yes, it's been quite a time. Um, We're adapting, I think, at this point, readapting to living back in New York City. Mm. We escaped uh, during the middle of the pandemic so far. So about a year ago, we moved to Bamako, to Mali, to um, get out of the the city, really the schooling environment for kids and to make life livable for us with two full-time jobs and two small children. And it was a very good move. And now we came back to teach in person. Julie, could you tell us a little bit about your sort of background trajectory and what brought you to the project uh, that is the focus of this book? Sure. I, you know, I didn't really mean to study France at all. Mm. Um, I sort of ended up studying in France almost by mistake. I studied Spanish in college and did my undergraduate research in Bolivia on migration from rural to urban areas and women who migrated from rural to urban areas and on discourses of development and modernization and I thought I would continue along similar lines once I started my graduate work, which I knew I wanted to do in anthropology. However, I didn't want to go right to grad school. So after college, a friend of mine and I moved to Paris, and I worked as a jeune fille au pair in the 17th arrondissement for a very wealthy, very bourgeois French family. And I was very fascinated by the strange culture of bourgeois French people and all the strange rituals and ideas they had. 
And I just started getting very interested in that and, uh, and also learning about how class, questions of class difference and other kinds of difference in France that I really hadn't imagined before I went there. And I wasn't really ready to leave after a year. So I enrolled in a master's program at the Ecole des Hautitudes en Sciences Sociales in anthropology. Hmm. And, and then also ended up teaching as an assistant English teacher at two schools in Aubervilliers, uh, on, you know, in the suburbs of Paris, the infamous banlieue. And I started teaching there in 2005, which in October, which was the, oh, wow. when these quote unquote riots, so-called riot occurred in the suburbs. And that was sort of right where they were happening. Right? And some of the people... I was teaching were participants in the protest events. And I, you know, didn't know too much about what was going on. But I, from undergraduate, I was really more interested in questions of sort of broad questions of social theory that I thought I could get at through migration, through studying migration. So how these larger political economic structures end up influencing people's everyday lives and even their most intimate kinds of interactions. Hmm. So I began to see a project taking shape uh, in Aubervilliers, sort of in the shadow of what was happening on sort of schooling and how teachers, in fact, were producing cultural difference uh, to understand the difficult situation that they were facing in schools, uh, made difficult not by the kids they were teaching, but really by education policy and sort of reforms, uh, defunding of some schools and things like that. And so I ended up writing my master's thesis on that oh. uh, and getting in sort of getting interested in France. But when I started my PhD, I still had no idea I would end up working on the Gare du Nord. I, I knew about the Gare du Nord. I sort of was fascinated by the train station and trains in general I was interested in. But uh, I just ended up writing an essay about it for a class that I took my first year of grad school. Hmm. And then from that, I did a little research into the background of the Gare du Nord, because right as I had left Paris, there was this big riot uh, at the station, again, so-called riot, really more of a protest. And it became the center of you know debate during the presidential elections when Sarkozy was elected. And I hmm. thought, what is this strange place that is suddenly so powerful in people's political imagination that's just mm -hmm. a railway station. And my research suggested there was quite a lot there, even in the past of the station. Well, it's an amazing book. I've spent time at the station. I've spent time through the station, I should say, like commuting here and there, mm -hmm. various directions. And of course, I've thought about it and known people who've lived nearby and spent time around there. But yeah, your book just opened up a whole other set of ideas and stories and perspectives on it. And I just I just can't wait to dig in. So I'm, I'm very excited. So the book started with this paper in grad school and then kind of expanded. I guess I, I wonder, you know, how you went from that initial work on it to thinking that, okay, there's a whole dissertation here. There's a whole book here. Like where, what, how did you even start that uh, opening up of the project? Well, I ended up doing all this research into the history of the station. And mm -hmm. through that historical research, I saw that there were a few different times in the station's history where this idea of these so-called dangerous classes and concerns over these dangerous classes seemed to coalesce around the station. And I was really intrigued by that. Uh, one of those moments was when the station was built in the... 1860s. Uh, another one was in the early 20th century around railway workers 
and railway worker protest and work stoppages. And then another one was in the 1970s when the neighborhood around the station began to change and Mm. there were new groups of different migrant groups coming into the station, many from North Africa, and how neighbors were dealing with this new sense that their neighbors were different from them and potentially dangerous from their perspective. So in my dissertation, I I go more into those historical periods. But in the book, I ended up focusing more on the present day. So Julie, if we could just back up for a second, you know, with this New Books in French Studies podcast, there's always a bit of a an inside baseball quality, like the assumption that I make or that we might make that, you know, listeners who are tuning into New Books in French Studies will know about France and will be familiar with French history or contemporary France or Paris. Uh, could you just situate us a little bit uh, in terms of the Gal du Nord, the kind of focus of the book in terms of space? Not the whole history of it so much, but just give us a sense of it, for, especially for those people who've never been there and aren't familiar with the station. Yeah, sure. I would be happy to do that. I think part of the book was introducing people to this whole social world. So mm. the station is... First of all, it's the largest railway hub in Europe in terms of passenger traffic. Somewhere between 700,000 and close to a million people pass through every day. Hmm. And it's located in the towards the north of the city, but sort of in the middle of the northern part of the city. And the name of the station, the Gare du Nord, doesn't mean that it's located in the north of the city. It's actually that it means that from here you can get to the north. So the way that the stations were created back in the 19th century, uh, they were named for where you could get to from that station. And the Gare du Nord serves northern places, whether Saint-Denis, just north bordering Paris, or London, crossing the channel and going to London. So the station Mm -hmm. itself brings together passengers on international trains, on the subway, buses, Commuter rail trains are a significant part of the passenger traffic that go to the suburbs, and they bring all of these people together into one space. And that was part of why I found it such a fascinating space to look at sociologically. Even though you need to and you do explore the history of the station as a space in the city, as a kind of transportation and circulation hub, the book is really focused on the contemporary station and the West African migrants who are your interlocutors and who whose social world in and around and through the station uh, you're most concerned with. So could you tell us a little bit about how that historical and that contemporary kind of come together in the project? Yes, I think this was one of the, the challenging things to do with the project, because when I was doing my research, um, I was lucky enough to meet a lot of great French historians who either you know established historians or PhD students who helped me a whole lot and who I met while I was trying to get through the archival part of my work. And I was really a novice in the archives. And so people like Andrew Israel Ross, who I met in the police archives, for example, really helped me a lot to figure things out and figure out how to put these two things together. But what I found that was, well, first of all, to understand the contemporary Gal du Nord and especially the way that migrants and in particularly West African migrants, black men, for the most part, young black men that I would speak to, how they occupied the space. It was really important to understand the history of public space in Paris and particularly Mm. this public space and how this public space had inscribed racial difference onto it really from its foundation. And so that was sort of how I saw these 
two aspects fitting together. The other thing was that these West African migrants were very concerned with history, not just their own histories, but the history of France. And they really pushed me to look into the history of the station and Mm -hmm. were very interested in learning more about it. So it was also part of how my project evolved in conversation with the West Africans I got to know there. One of the things that I was thinking about, and I'm just going to ask it like this, even though I think it's probably a bit, well, it's definitely cheesy, is that I kept thinking, you know, as I was reading the book, I was like, the book is about a hub and it is a hub (laughs) of like all these disciplines, all these approaches, all these questions that are sort of swirling about historically in the French context. And especially, I mean, duh, obviously, uh, the questions of modernization and, and of migration, which of course is a part of French history since always. <laughs> but, you know, the way we think about migrants and migration right now, especially with respect to France, especially with France facing north, um, and then the station positioned as the station of the north. Let's just talk about how the book is situated in relationship to the study of migrants and migration, you know, in the contemporary French context. Like, how do you see the book making a contribution to that really active, massive literature and, and action around those those questions? Yes, I mean, I think that was the the main sort of set of literature that I was initially reading and thinking about as I came to this project, whether it was Mm. from the perspective of historians or sociologists or other anthropologists, especially when I started my master's thesis in 2005, this is something that people are, are really talking about and trying to figure out is this question of migration in the French context. Uh, a place that maybe hadn't had as much attention on those issues as, say, the U.S. did mm. previously, but now, of course, has an enormous amount of attention given to, to these categories of migration, and more recently to questions of race. Mm-hmm. I came to this project, certainly, as many French people pointed out to me, as someone from the United States who was talking about things like migration and culture and ethnicity and even race in a scholarly context where, especially in 2005 to 2010, say, it was really still not something that was much talked about, uh, the question of culture and race. Uh, It was seen Mm -hmm. as very American. And even I was accused of being a culturalist by some French scholars uh, for not sort of basically only focusing on class, which was what I I experienced when in some of my seminars, although certainly not all of them. And there are many excellent French scholars who focus on race. Now, Mm -hmm. it just wasn't people I met uh, back then. Sure. I wanted to understand how migration had really changed some of the urban environment because I saw migration as changing the urban environment in Paris and my experience living there. I've lived there for a total of about five or six years. Mm -hmm. And I saw some really fascinating and interesting ways that migrants were were transforming urban places. And the Gare du Nord, when I started researching it, also seemed like a place that had long been transformed from its beginnings even by different kinds of people who'd come from elsewhere. And so that's how I approached the Gare du Nord as an object really made by mobility and migration. The title of the book, Julie, Adventure Capital, it's such a provocative and fascinating title to me and really uh, pulls together, I think, how you were using the stories of the West African migrants that 
you worked with and spoke to for this project, how you're using their perspectives on their own lives and trajectories to sort of come at the scholarship and thinking about migration in a different new way. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I think that the main goal with the book, by the time it had become a book, was to bring together these two things, the station, which we've been talking about so far, and the history mm-hmm. of the Gare du Nord and its trajectories and how it was shaped through different kinds of mobilities. And then what happened when West Africans who had come to France from mostly Mali, Senegal, Côte d'Ivoire, what happened when they encountered this space. And it's really the meeting of these two trajectories that I explore in my book. And so that's why I thought that the title Adventure Capital brought these together, because as I talk about at length in the book, from the beginning, these West Africans told me, you know, we're not migrants, we're adventurers. Mm -hmm. And I began to unpack and learn more about really what they meant by this intriguing idea of being adventurers. And they saw the Galdenor as really the center of their adventure and how they might succeed on this thing they called their adventure in France and their adventure abroad. It was so curious to me that the Galdenor, this railway hub, became the center for these men of their initiatory journey. Certainly not the center for all West Africans. Many West Africans would not want to spend time at the Galdenor, but for this group of, of, of men, mostly almost all men, they saw you know, the Gare du Nord as this space that was more or less located close to the center of Paris, that was really a very important place for many different people uh, in and around the capital. And they saw it as an international station, as they said all the time, a real crossroads. And mm-hmm. this was not about the banlieue and being excluded always on the periphery. This was about them participating in what they saw as a central space of French urban life. Can we talk a little bit too, Julie, about the African in the title, the movement that you need to make in sensitive relationship to the ways that that word African, that category African gets used outside of this project and outside of communities, West African, African, you know, how the community uh, that you are working with in the book took shape and how we should understand or think about the relationship between the African and the title and some of the, I don't know, the the homogenizing and, and oversimplifying that happens when the, the term African gets mobilized in the contemporary French context, well, the historical and contemporary French context. Well, I think you have to consider the way that this term is used, as you point out, you know, discursively, whether in the media or in the words, in the mouths of politicians, which mm-hmm. I, I discuss in the book, and then how it's used sort of on the ground. And what I found for the West Africans I worked with was that they were very astute observers of French public life. And they were able to, I think, see things in France that other people didn't see, or they were able to make visible structures and phenomena that tend to remain invisible. And so they are the ones who really guided my approach to the station. Their analysis, their sort of theorization of France and the Gare du Nord was what I really sought to bring to light in this Mm -hmm. book. And that's where the term African here comes from, is because it's a term they insisted upon. And I also was thinking about how I didn't want to use it in a way 
that would reinforce this Africa is a country narrative. Sure. Uh, however, when they talk about the African hub, what they mean, uh, and I discuss this in the book, is not this kind of enclave of some imagined Africa, you know, homogenized Africa, but rather the emphasis here is on the hub part, which is the coming together of all these different trajectories that do have a connection to their experiences, not only in their own countries, but throughout their trajectories within West, mostly West Mm -hmm. and Central Africa, before they came to France, and how the strategies and connections they made and social networks they built on the road, then get transferred to the Gal du Nord and how they connect those places to the Gal du Nord. So let's talk, Julie, about how you met your interlocutors, how you you know expanded the, the group of interlocutors, and especially um, your working relationship with Lassana Niare, who's played such a central role in the book. Yeah. Can you tell us about how many people you spoke with, how you came to develop these relationships, your own whatever you want to share about your own kind of positionality. I mean, you talked about being an American, but as a woman um, in terms of race, like just the, the kind of nuts and bolts of the project and how it came together. I found it very difficult from the beginning to do this research. And there were many times where I thought that I might give up on doing the research, Mm. in part for the reasons I think somewhat anticipated in your question, right? which is one, that the station itself was just a very difficult place at times, a very complicated place with so many different people going and coming. No one really wanted to talk to me at first. And I wasn't even sure exactly what direction Mm. I would be taking. It took me a long time to meet Lassana. I mean, several months anyway. I am very glad that I met him uh, towards the beginning of my fieldwork period because he certainly facilitated uh, a lot of other connections with the, I would say, a total of maybe 35 to 40 people that I talked with in some depth uh, with a smaller number of people that I really got to know quite well, even meeting some of their family members even going to Mali and Senegal with some of the people that I met there, I would say there was probably a group of about 12 people that I got to know sort of more in depth. And anthropologists talk about their work among each other as deep hanging out sometimes. And I do feel like that's what I did a lot of. It did feel like that certainly at times. You know, I would go to the archive in the morning. I'll just tell you a typical day in the field. Sure. I would go to the archives in the morning like sometimes I was in the National Archives. Sometimes I went to the labor archives, which were in Roubaix. Um, sometimes I was in the police archives quite a lot. And then I uh, would go in the afternoon around three, four o'clock to the Gare du Nord, because that's when many of these men would start arriving because they came from their jobs. And I would hang out in the front square, which is on the front of my book. I would hang out there. Sometimes try to talk to people, sometimes just see who talked to me. And it's on one of those days in, I think it was in September of 2009, that I met Lasana in the in the front square. And he, I think I met him, he was sort of hitting on me, I think, a bit when I met him. But then I said, you know, I have a fiance and I'm actually here to do a project on the Gal du Nord. I'm writing I said I was writing a book at the time because I thought it was more legible than dissertation. And he didn't trust me at all uh, in the beginning, of course. 
why would he trust me? What a bizarre thing that I said I was doing. And it seems totally questionable. And of course, we know now that many anthropologists are often mistaken for spies, but also may have been Mm -hmm. spies. So it was through that interaction and just talking to him more and more that I began to get to know him better. And he also got to know me and my situation better. And then I think that it took a few more months for there to be actual trust enough to develop between us where he even told me his real first name. And Lassen, of course, is a is a pseudonym, but he didn't even tell me his real name the first mm. time we met for months. Uh, many people, in fact, had these fake names they would give to people because they were concerned that, you know, meeting people could be very mm-hmm. dangerous for them if they met the wrong person especially given the fact that many of these men were undocumented. I would say about half the people that I worked Mm. with were undocumented. And so they were risking deportation. So it made sense that they didn't trust me. And there were people at the station who didn't trust me for the whole time I was doing Mm -hmm. my field work there, who thought the whole time that I was lying about being being American, that I was actually French, that I um, was working for the police. And I completely Mm -hmm. understand why. And actually the experience of understanding why and the strategies and lengths they went to to protect themselves and be wary of these connections just as they sought connections with people was very instructive about what they were doing Mm -hmm. at the station. The other thing that also you ask about was in terms of my own position in relation to um, these West Africans. When I started the project, I didn't necessarily know that I was going to focus on West Africans at all. I sort of opened to seeing what I would focus on and sort of what made this into a meaningful social environment. I just had that hunch that it was. And it ended up being that I found mostly in this case, West Africans, although there were other people involved in this group as well, who were the ones who really wanted to meet people, you know, outside of their community and and wanted to use the station as this crossroads. And so I ended up working with them. And of course, I think as a white woman, I occupied a particular place, first of all, because they were, they told me, trying to meet white women at the station. Uh, That was one of the reasons why they were there. And I should specify they were trying to meet white women for serious relationships. And uh, some of them did meet their uh, partners and and wives at the station and had children with them. And I met several of those couples and and end up discussing that in my research as well. However, uh, it really made me understand how much of the station was really defined as a masculine environment. Mm-hmm. You know, as a woman in this in this space, I had to take on a particular role in order to be legible to the people who 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 made the social world, and it really was quite a masculine mm-hmm. environment. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com 
slash NBN50 to get 50% off. It's totally fascinating to me, the work that you've done and the the people that you encountered and all that you've learned from them and, and share in the book. Julie, you've talked about the station with me, and you certainly talk about it throughout the book as a space that is at once a space of, you know, connection and community, particularly for the purposes of your book, but it's also a space of surveillance and policing and infrastructure and, you know, urban control and some of these other things. And I wonder, you know, not just how that's reflected in the project, but, you know, how you negotiated as a researcher and a writer and as someone moving through the space, both in your conversations with the the West Africans you, you worked with and in those archival experiences that you referenced earlier and in the stage or the internship that you did um, with the, was it with the SNCF? Is that? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of the archival grain question, but it's also like the grain of the field and how you kind of move against and with those things in the project and how you think about that now. One of the ways I think about this is the way I think about anthropology more generally, which is it's a very problematic discipline in many ways. And it's also a useful discipline to displace some of the common sense ways that we have of thinking about things. So I think all of us, uh, historians, anthropologists, people who work in literary studies, are confronted with the prevalence of discourse, right? And the discursive turd and, and all of these ideas about places that come from the powerful discourses and how we ourselves and places we inhabit are shaped mm-hmm. by those discourses. And of course, I, uh, I, I, you know, come from that. We, a lot of us read that when we were in graduate school and um, it has shaped in many ways our approaches to the projects. And of course, that's part of how I look at the Gal du Nord. But I think that anthropology is at its most powerful, not when it's deconstructing these discourses, but actually when it's displacing common sense ways of thinking about these places and these social organizations uh, by using the way that people in their everyday lives see and interact and make social life meaningful for themselves in the world. Really, in many ways, how they themselves analyze and theorize places like the Galdenor or complex social situations elsewhere. That's where I really found anthropology to be its most powerful. And that's where I see sort of this against the grain or with the grain. It's not that I'm really deconstructing the Galdenor, but rather by looking at the Galdenor from the perspective of West African adventurers, I'm able to see how this place has changed over the years. I'm able to see how the kinds of social control that are invisible can be made visible. Uh, I'm able to see how questions like the way the French gender system, as it's been called, works and how they Mm. engage with that, or how the policing system works and how they engage with that, not so much to denounce repression, because I think we all know that there's police Mm. repression in France. And it's been quite clearly shown that there's a lot of racist police repression and violence, police violence based on race. I also, though, wanted to look at how people deal with that situation. What is it like to be policed all the time? Mm -hmm. And what do you do Mm -hmm. in that context? And how do you still make your life mean something to you? How do you get through it? How do you create a meaningful social world? And that's what I wanted to to understand. And that's what I ended up focusing on. Well, so Julie, we've sort of been jumping around the book in a way as we've been talking. And you know, that just want to 
come to this issue of the, you know, the structure of the book, how you organize the chapters. We've already talked a little bit about that first chapter in some ways, the dangerous classes uh, in terms of the history of the station, its intersections with history of labor and class and urban development in Paris and in France, transportation, circulation, surveillance, all of those things. And then the, the guiding imperial ideology of the station. So these are things we've we've already uh, addressed. Maybe we can talk a little bit before we get into the, the Galgenau method or that those tactics and survival strategies that you just sort of referenced a little bit just now to talking about the place of those events, the renovation, rebuilding of the station in, in 2007 and the so-called revolt uh, protest uh, in March 2007 and the role that that plays in the book. I know that it was something that you had your own experience of, you know, being what you were back in France at that point. I was finishing my master's thesis. Right, at right. That time. So you mentioned that earlier. But what about the role of 2007? Well, what happened in 2007? And then what about the role of it in the book? Yes. Yeah, so the so called riot of 2007, or what I think of more as a revolt of many different kinds of Gare du Nord train passengers, was this key event that both turned my attention to the station some ways sparked that first interest in it, uh, sort of noticing it, taking a second look at it and trying to figure it out. But then also became one of the main ways where I see a kind of unexpected politics that arises in this place that brings together so many different kinds of people. And in this place where you can't exclude really, or you can't, can no longer... um, separate people according to their class or according to where they're coming from in the station, uh, you can't fully separate them. And part of that is because the way that it was renovated was actually meant to bring people together. Of course, I talk about how that didn't really work because it ends up also leading to lots more surveillance and policing. Mm -hmm. However, I did find though that the the main uh, sort of political part of the of this revolt was very much diminished by the press and it was seen as just this kind of disorderly uh, event in which people who were mostly depicted as being black and from the suburbs destroyed property and tried to you know throw things or otherwise hurt the police and disturb the circulation of the trains at rush hour mm. Of course, when I talk to people in the station, I've got very different kinds of narratives about this event. And so I wanted to frame that chapter as uh, an attempt to understand how something that's seen as just a mere station, a place where you get from point A to point B, sometimes an annoying place where you have to deal with all these other people and this mass of other people, how that itself could become a meaningful site, not just for social interactions, which I look at in the rest of the book, but even for political action. So let's come back, Julie, to to some of the strategies that you mentioned a little bit earlier in terms of how the West African migrants that you worked with for the project negotiate the space and in particular negotiate encounters with the police and these various forms of surveillance and control in and through the station. The Galdunor method. So the Galdunor method was this method I learned about while I was doing my research. 
and this is what research is like when I was just hanging out in that front square and this guy came over and I had never seen him before and everyone was really happy to see him and they were all joking around and laughing and you know they ended up saying something like oh, you know, you tried the like undocumented workers method, the sans-papier method, and that didn't work. So now you're back to the Gal du Nord method. And everyone thought that was hilarious. <laughs> and I was very intrigued by this uh, terminology that they were using uh, of the different kinds of methods that these migrants had to use in order to get by and hopefully succeed in France on their adventures. Uh, one of them being, you know, struggle, you know, doing the political organizing work of the sans-papier or another very different kind of method being whatever they were doing at the Gal du Nord, which I was still learning about. And one of the things I found out with this Gal du Nord method was that it was in part about dealing with the many threats that living in France in general posed for Mm -hmm. them. And in particular, things that the station posed for them, because they they did get a lot of community from the station. They did think that they could use the station to meet different kinds of people that could help them, who could help them. But of course, there were also all of these police forces, which, I mean, I think there were like not, at least nine different kinds of police and security forces patrolling the station at all mm-hmm. times. So especially for those who are undocumented, but even for those who weren't, the police were this constant presence that they had to deal with. And one of the things I found was that they end up kind of incorporating the police into their Gaudinor method. Mm. You know, here I really, I'm not minimizing the danger of the police. It was very dangerous for them. But they really also insisted that, first of all, they were much better at mastering this very complex public space than the police were. They knew the space a lot better. They knew all of the entrances, all of the exits, where all the trains went at all times. They could kind of diagnose the social scene better than the police. They're very competitive in that way. And they also really sort of outperformed the police in terms of spatial mastery. They could also minimize the very harmful interactions that they sometimes had with the police, interactions that were basically based on the police being disrespectful to them, like using tu instead of vous and insulting them when they asked them for their papers. And those could be painful interactions, I think. Mm -hmm. And so they had to find some way to reformulate those and to, you know, sort of recover their own sense of their dignity. Mm In that fourth chapter of the book, Hacking Infrastructures, you really explore the different ways that the station plays a role in migrants, you know, seeking various forms of work and economic opportunity, some of it legal, some of it not legal. And you talk about the way that the mostly men that you're, you interacted with for this project create value in the face of marginalization and diminished opportunities. I think that's your phrasing. So could you talk a little bit about how you explored that whole economic side of the space and how these people negotiate it? This is where I think the work of this deep contextualization that we do was really helpful because once I saw the role that the Gal du Nord played in relationship to their other jobs, and in some ways, they saw the Gal du Nord as a job, at least as a kind of a job. You know, I had to understand the way that it played a role in this larger labor system that they were a part mm-hmm. of and how they were absolutely integrated into a labor system. It was just that they were integrated into a very inferior position in that labor system. 
they're unable to really advance as skilled workers in the construction industry that so many of them worked in, even though many of them gained lots of skills, because then you have to pay them more. So they were sort of maintained at this unskilled level. I had to understand the way that that whole deeper context of their position within France influenced what they were doing at the station. Only by understanding that larger context was I able to understand what they were trying to do when they engage with the infrastructure of the station, which is what I call hacking infrastructure, mm-hmm. and try to use the station as a place not only where they can you know, make a few bucks here and there, but also as a place where they could do some kind of work. And they were very dedicated to being hard workers. It was a big part of their identity um, that wasn't so marginalizing, that wasn't so dehumanizing in some way compared to what they had faced coming to France and then working in French industries, including construction and especially the temporary work day laborer context where they were often working um, or in restaurant work as well and bakeries and stuff like that. Uh, and, and, and the kind of work they had to face there and then what they could do at the station, which uh, was to sort of illustrate their own expertise and um, use their sort of social know-how and spatial know-how to create new opportunities for Mm -hmm. them. But I should say that, you know, this creation of new opportunities, I do think sometimes it could recover some of the lost dignity that they felt, uh, you know, was taken from them through the process of being a Black African migrant in France. But because of how the system worked overall, and they were very astute observers of the system, you know, it was difficult for this to make a really meaningful difference in terms of their socioeconomic standing. This is not a narrative of salvation and heroic individuals who, you know, strike out and overcome the system. No, it's, uh, you know, it's a story of uh, a group of people who are trying to, you know, carve out a corner of a socially meaningful and dignified life in a very difficult context for them. Yeah, I was really, I was really intrigued and kind of in admiration of you reading the book, because you have to negotiate what we know to be the story or what you know to be the story of how difficult the lives of some of these people are with how people frame their own lives and want to talk about their own lives and the idea of being an adventurer rather than, you know, using some other terminology is an important pushback against some framings of the story and history of migration in certain types of ways that might emphasize other stories we might know about, like camps and, you know, Calais. And like, I I just think that that must be a, a real challenge when you're writing about communities that face economic hardship, racism, police and other forms of brutality and repression and violence, how to think about, write about, uh, work with those communities without falling into those existing narratives, but yeah, without also then turning around and telling a heroic story. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's so hard. I think you have to go back. I mean, for me anyway, I don't know what (laughs) people have different solutions maybe, but for me, the most important thing was I just, whenever I got stuck with that, those kinds of questions you were were just saying, and I did get stuck sometimes thinking they're not like these romantic heroes. I'm not romanticizing this process. At the same time, they're not defined by the repressive structures that attempt Mm -hmm. to define them. They're not. And So in order to mediate that, I really always just came back to what they said and what they wanted to say. And 
and the way that they saw and analyzed this Mm -hmm. context, right? Because it's not really about like giving voice to them. They have plenty Mm -hmm. of voice. The point is that they have a great analysis of this world that, and they make visible these structures that we wouldn't otherwise see Mm -hmm. as well uh, in terms of how the structures actually work. And uh, especially in a place like the Gal du Nord, where we don't tend to look for them, they refused the kind of suffering slot of the migrants, you know, representation that they saw on, you know, the uh, TV shows about uh, or news reports about, you know, these migrants, migrants, uh, you know, dying in some cases in in the Mm. Mediterranean, for example, which, you know, uh, was something we saw a lot while I was doing Mm -hmm. my research. And, you know, which touched them personally and touched their families in many cases. However, they saw that there was kind of an overemphasis on the, the you know, these kind of undifferentiated Africans who were, um, you know, all sort of suffering because of this larger repressive system, which is true, they are. But they just saw that that wasn't sufficient to, to define them and that that kind of um, representation sort of reinforced some of the more like paternalistic narratives about uh, you know, Euro-American relationships to Africa, and they really provided a different lens by using this idea of the adventurer. And so that's what I followed. That last chapter before the conclusion, Julie, the ends of adventure kind of comes back to, well, the spaces and connections outside the station, you know, to, to ties to family, places of origin, and then also the kind of life cycle stuff about uh, coming of age, uh, adulthood, social reproduction, you mentioned people's relationships and children and larger context of families. So yeah, I guess I wanted to ask you about how you you pull that together then, how you kind of end the book by looking at not just the life of the station, but the sort of broader course of the lives of the interlocutors that you worked with. And yeah, what what lies outside the station? Right. Well, the whole premise of the project from the beginning, and I did end up following this thread, was you know what does what do all these questions of migration and race and public space and this problematic ideal of living together or an integrated society look like when you look at it from the perspective of the Gal du Nord and from the perspective of adventurers. And, you know, part of that involved following the tracks of the Gal du Nord mm-hmm. outside of it and figuring out what I could find outside of it because that were defining the station and making this object what it was, which was an object created from mobility and migration. So I wanted to look at all of those different threads and trajectories. And of course, I had to choose at some point which ones I was going to focus on. Um, and in the end, I ended up, you know, having the opportunity to accompany uh, some of the people I met and talked to there, uh, to Mali, including at one point Lassana, uh, in I believe it was in 2014. And it was only really when I went to Mali and Senegal that I understood what was going on at the Gal du Nord mm. at all. I realized once I went, the first time I went was in 2011, uh, I realized, you know, I actually did not really understand what was going on because again, I didn't have that deep context of social and kin relations that were defining what they were doing. So, so many times where I had questions about, yeah, but why did you, you know, why did you send 200 euros a month back when you were barely making that? And so you couldn't eat for, you know, two weeks, you only ate like a baguette, you know, a day 
And, you know, why, why did you keep sending it back? Or there were just things that I found puzzling about what they were doing. And I didn't really understand the logic until I went back and sort of understood these deep social and kin relations that were also part of their adventure and how their adventure sort of enabled those social and kin relations, but also was trying to, in some ways, not break away from them, but carve their own pathway within them. Uh, and so it was through going back and meeting people's families and seeing people, uh, you know, in their house building projects and all of the things they were trying to do through this mobility to France, which was not about just settling in France or whatever, but really creating this whole world, this whole mobile world and maintaining a whole mobile world that had existed already for centuries. That is not at all new. They wanted to keep it up and keep maintaining that and, and um, you know, how much their relationships uh, to their families, to their, to their siblings, uh, you know, really ended up being central to what they were doing at the Gal du Nord and the way they tried to bring the Gal du Nord into those transnational networks. Julie, we've talked about the, the longer term history of the station and of the city and the life trajectories of, of the people uh, who you worked with for this project. We have here and there, you know, engage the question of colonialism. How do you think about this project as a project that is or isn't um, engaged with the post-colonial? I in I think there's some time in the introduction and maybe more in the first chapter where I use the word post-colonial. And I remember someone on my committee who works in India saying, what do you mean post-colonial France? <laughs> Uh, because how can France be post-colonial? And we do it all the time, people who work on France, right? Right. And so I remember thinking that I had never really thought about it as not being post-colonial, right? Or not being somehow defined by, you know, the fracture coloniale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, of course, always problematizing that post uh, a little bit. But I I absolutely... Um, see this as, uh, you know, part of a a wider imperial story, part of the way that uh, France's imperial history um, has shaped not only the places that it colonized, but also France, which of course is something that many French historians uh, and historians of the French colonial world have, have pointed out. And I am very much indebted and influenced by that kind of thinking. Uh, and I wanted to apply that in an anthropological context and, and, and absolutely think about um, the way that France occupies this um, continued colonial fracture in many ways. Um, And that absolutely has only magnified as I did my research and France actually started occupying Mali uh, while I was writing the book Mm -hmm. Um, and still has an occupying force in Mali, although Macron sort of has now said they're withdrawing. Well, that's that's sort of the one of the last questions I wanted to ask you, Julie, not the last question, but, you know, the book came out in 2019. The, the research for this project you started in 2010, 2011? I think I did my first summer of research at the Gaudinor in 2008. Oh, 2008. But the okay. bulk was 2009 to 2011. Right. So as you've mentioned a few times, there's so many things that have happened along the way in this project. The book came out in 2019, which... I mean, part of me is just like, why is it taking me so long to talk to you? But <laughs> um, I'm so excited to be doing it now. <laughs> but so much has happened since the book came out. I mean, we started with the situation of pandemic, but just in terms of 
and of course these things are not mutually exclusive or we can't really separate them all out, but in terms of race, space, uh, the colonial question and how it comes back, religion, I guess I'm wondering a couple of things about this in terms of since 2019, when the book came out, like what have you shared about the book with your, your, the, with the community that, that the book is about? Um, And I mean, the book's in English and I don't know what the various issues would be with that, but, but um, yeah, what response have you gotten uh, to the book since it came out from the communities that, the community that, that you work with in the project from people who write about West Africans in contemporary France, that whole, you know, anthropologists, like that whole field of things. But then also, how do you think about the project and its and what it offers us, given the major upheavals and questions, particularly around race and space um, in the la- and policing? in the last couple of years since it came out. I know that those are two enormous and largely unfair questions, but whatever you want to do with them. Well, first, I think, you know, in terms of how um, the book and my interactions with the people who were involved in um, helping me make the book happen, um, I have constantly gone back and forth between the field and writing as I was doing this over the last decade or so. And, um, you know, I've, gotten their feedback on ideas that I've had and I, and I, um, they've really, you know, made it a much, much better book, uh, because of that. Um, and they were very dedicated. Several of them were very dedicated to the process of it being a book, um, and were, you know, thought that it took a bit of a long time, but understood (laughs) that like any good adventure, you know, it wasn't worth it to worry too much about how long it took. You know, the important thing was to like, look towards the future and keep, keep working at it, which they reassured me of several times throughout the process. Um, I would love to have it appear in French. I've tried to figure out how to make that happen. And um, so far it has not, but I hope that that will be forthcoming. Um, And then in terms of the larger question you ask about, you know, what's going on in terms of public space and race in France. And I think, you know, um, first of all, it's just been um, so important for me to, um, you know, work and see or or read the work really of, of scholars um, who are working on questions of race um, in France and have been actually for quite a while and see how they've been um, understanding what's going on now with um, different kinds of anti-racist groups in France and other um, other groups that are representing um, whether migrant groups or whether, um, you know, representing Black French people um, as you know, uh, depending on the kind of orientation of these groups, I think those those groups have just been doing such such important work. And you know, I I've now sort of turned towards looking more at questions of social activism, more of migrants in uh, who've returned to West Africa uh, in my in my more recent work, but um, they are in conversation with these migrant activists in France who are um, making, again, making visible um, different kinds of structures and realities of their everyday lives that they have to confront that might not always make it to the front pages. Um, But I think like in many places, um, they've, uh, you know, found a sort of space to create a um, more of a movement that has resonances with, you know, global struggles against 
you know, kind of very global racial capitalism. And I think that you see a lot of French activist groups and scholars also, you know, working on those questions, which has been um, so important for me, uh, inspiring me to, for me to read um, and also to talk about with many of my interlocutors. Julie, I would love to talk to you all day about this book. I have so many more questions, but I'll just ask you one last one, which is, What's next for you? What have you been working on since the book came out? Uh, yeah, where are you headed with your your own work? Well, I've been working sort of since I started doing research in Mali. I've been working with a deportee rights organization uh, in Mali, a few different activist groups that are composed of people who were deported uh, from not only France, but from the U.S., from other parts of Africa, uh, from Saudi Arabia, from really all over the world, and ended up back in Mali. Not all of them Malian. Um, and how migration and the experience of migration and the experience of deportation has led them to take on a new political consciousness and make a, an articulation of political belonging that is not based on the kind of ethno-nationalism that we see so often as being cited as on the rise, um, even in the parts of West Africa that they're from. And so I see them as articulating this new kind of political belonging through their experiences of migration and deportation uh, in contexts like Bamako and Dakar. And that's where I've been focusing my more recent research. So a little bit more far afield outside of France, but mm -hmm. many of the same issues come up. Well, Julie, I'm just so grateful to you for taking the time to speak with me about Adventure Capital and for writing this wonderful book. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Roxanne. It was such a pleasure. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.